Welcome to Thinking About Religion. I'm Dale Tuggy. If you pick up a book called Zen and the Art of Poker, you might suspect that this will not simply be the unfiltered teaching of an ancient Indian sage. But according to my guest today, many more serious presentations of Buddhism in recent times are presenting various modern remixes of Buddhist teaching and practice, which are strongly colored by Western ideas and values. He's written a book explaining how Asian and Western Buddhists have adapted Buddhism to compete in the modern religious marketplace. Dr. David McMahon is the Charles A. Dana Professor of Religious Studies at Franklin and Marshall College in Pennsylvania. His research focuses on South Asian Buddhism and on Buddhism and modernity. The author of numerous scholarly articles and book chapters on Buddhism, he's here with us today to talk about his book, The Making of Buddhist Modernism. Dr. McMahon, welcome to Thinking About Religion. Thanks for having me. Dr. McMahon, like you, I've taught college classes about Eastern philosophies and religions, and I find that students come into my classes with a sort of standard view about Buddhism. In your book, you describe the same phenomenon. Could you read us your description of that? When I asked my students in an introductory class on Asian religions, our first day dealing with Buddhism, to relate some of their ideas and images of the tradition, After the various impressions from popular films and magazine articles, someone faithfully conveyed that semester's version of what has become the standard view, that Buddhism is a religion in which you don't really have to believe anything in particular or follow any strict rules. You simply exercise compassion and maintain a peaceful state of mind through meditation. Buddhism values creativity and intuition and is basically compatible with a modern scientific worldview. It is democratic, encourages freedom of thought, and is more of a spirituality than a religion. Dr. McMahon, when you first encountered Buddhism, was that the way that you saw the tradition? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I just was pretty limited to what I could find in the local Walton's bookstore when I was in high school. I had no idea of, of this at the time, but it was very tailored to somebody like me, who somebody with who was a, a modern Western, you know, American person who had certain background and, and certain kind of default understandings of things. So, Doctor McMahon, what is Buddhist modernism, and how did you discover that there was such a thing? I've defined Buddhist modernism as forms of Buddhism that have been articulated and reconstructed based on some of the major currents of modernity. You know, you can think about modernity in a lot of different ways. You can look at it from an economic perspective or political perspective. And I I thought that for thinking about Buddhism, a lot of what really mattered was the history of ideas and uh, also colonialism. And so the modernity that I was particularly interested in was coming through scientific rationalism, the Enlightenment, psychology, Romanticism and Transcendentalism, Protestant Christianity, and also just the historical phenomenon of colonialism in the 19th century especially. And all those forces sort of came together and really uh, forced Buddhists in Asia to rethink their own tradition in response to uh, especially the colonial situation in places like, uh, at the time, Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, and, and also Southeast Asia. What a lot of times they did was to take these discourses, these streams of modern thinking, and to intertwine Buddhism with them, to rearticulate Buddhism in that language, uh, often in, in, in the language of scientific rationalism, for instance, 
and to do this in response to the colonial powers who were often telling Buddhists that they were superstitious and uh, you know nihilistic and incomprehensible and you know just that their religion really didn't matter much. So in response to that, they went back to their own scriptures and went back to their own kind of complex, dense philosophy and articulated Buddhism in a way that both embraced certain forms of, of Western modernity, but also turned it against Western modernity and turned it against the, the colonists. I'm assuming just because you're a Caucasian American, you weren't raised as a Buddhist Correct me if I'm wrong. Were you searching for religion, or did you did you end up converting to Buddhism when you were younger? I was raised in a very conservative Christian church, like a lot of people who then became interested in in Asian religions. And when that started to not make as much sense to me as it might have when I was younger, I, I started looking around. And, and one of the traditions that I got interested in was Buddhism. I, w- I was interested in a lot of things. And I think my first pass at Buddhism when I was in high school and, and then in college, I saw it as one articulation of a kind of perennialist vision of things, which is, you know, that all religions kind of end up at the same place. And I was drawn to meditative traditions because I believed that the meditative traditions got you to a kind of authentic experience and that that wasn't so much reliant on faith or belief. Mm. I'm not sure that I would quite express it that way today, but that was my idea at the time, that these traditions could sort of get me to something authentic that was not really subject to faith and was not really subject to belief. That, I think, was my way into thinking about Buddhism. And I happened to show up at college around the same time a a Zen teacher showed up and set up a Zendo and started teaching meditation classes. So I started getting into meditation. So I've been personally engaged in Buddhism to some extent or, or other for most of my adult life. You know, and it's a kind of a home base for me. Uh, That's not to say I'm completely immersed in any one tradition or that I've kind of bought into the whole package of any one tradition. But, uh, you know, it is something that I think with on a regular basis. And and I still do sit down on my cushion and do some meditation when I can. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned perennialism. This is an interesting topic. Were you reading books by Houston Smith? Yeah, Houston Smith, Aldous Huxley... Gurdjieff, all kinds of different people who sort of had this idea that that there's some kind of core truth in all religions and that that truth is the same. Yeah, that we have to get back to this ancient sort of strand of teaching that's never been lost and it's really inside the mystical parts of all the religions. Right, that's roughly right. what perennialism is, right? Yeah, yeah. But it has roots in uh, 19th century theosophy and uh, right, kind of like proto-New Age eclectic religion in some sense. Yeah, definitely. I, I think perennialism is still very alive. It's it's almost kind of like the civic religion of, of modern liberals. You know, it's, it's sort of a default mode that, that a lot, if you turn on Oprah or something, that's what you're going to hear, basic articulations of, of perennialism. Yeah, especially the pluralistic aspect of it, that in a sense, one religion's as good as the other, because it's always going to have that same core of experience Right. At least some practitioners right. will have that same core of experience. And so, yeah. 
And then, then, of course, one of the problems with perennialism is that one person starts to say, well, perennialism really, when it comes down to it, it's kind of like Vedanta Hinduism. And mm-hmm. another person will say, no, no, it's really more like uh, Mahayana Buddhism. And another mm-hmm. person will say, no, it's like Meister Eckhart's Christianity. And then you're just kind of back in the soup and you really haven't, <laughs> yeah. you haven't overcome this, this fundamental conflict of visions. Yeah, now your book is, it's a work of religious studies, but I mean, I would say the prominent discipline there is really history or history of ideas. Yeah. Doesn't perennialism get sort of an unfriendly reaction from a lot of historians? It does. It's really out of fashion now, in part because, well, one of the things that I just mentioned is one of the problems with it. And another is that it has tended in the past, at least, to have a little bit of a, a kind of imperialist edge. You know, what's important about religion is this mystical core. Therefore, what you're doing, you know, typical Buddhist or Hindu practitioner with your gods and your rituals and stuff, that's not really important. So it's only when you kind of knock out a lot of what is actually important on the ground to real practitioners that you can then say, well, here's here's what's really important and what all religions have in common. Yeah, it seems super humble in, in trying to, in a way, equalize all religions, but then it turns out the Western theorist is telling you how it is. Exactly. Uh, what matters. <laughs> yeah. So from a, a standpoint of historian of a historian of religions, it's not a very good model to, to approach it because it, mm-hmm. it really doesn't take into account what people are actually doing and what's important to, to actual people on the ground. Well, let's back up and talk about something historical that's central to any Buddhist tradition. Dr. McMahon, could you explain to us what the Pali Canon Sutras are and why they're a focus for conservative Buddhists, as well as many Westerners who are interested in Buddhism? So the Pali Canon is the earliest Buddhist literature. It claims to go back to the time of the Buddha himself. And of course, there are various discussions about how much of the Pali Canon can be reliably traced back uh, that far. But I think it is a reflection of the first few hundred years of Buddhism. Uh, so it's often thought of, by, especially by Theravada Buddhists, which are prominent in Southeast Asia, to be the most authentic articulation of Buddhism. Do you consider those sutras to be the closest approximation that we have to the teachings of the historical Buddha? I think that's probably fair to say. What the significance of that is, is another question. Mm-hmm. You know, is the Buddha, the historical Buddha, the only person who had the the final word on the Buddhist tradition? You know, there's a lot of other interesting thinkers who said different things and expanded on and, uh, you know, drew out some implications that weren't there in the earlier parts. They're an unusual genre of literature, aren't they, these sutras? They sound like they're meant to be memorized. Yeah, and that's why they sort of drive students crazy. You can read something for 10 pages and then you look back and you realize, oh, there was really only about three or four sentences worth of actual content there. (laughs) Everything else was sort of a repetition and repetition and repetition, and then you change the last phrase. The reason they're composed that way is for them to be memorized. So they were memorized and memorized and memorized and weren't really written down until a few centuries after the Buddha's death. And you can tell a a real stylistic difference, for instance, between the Pali Sutras and the later Mahayana Sutras. And one of the big differences is the Mahayana Sutras were actually composed as written texts. And that ended up being almost like a, you know, like a wild new special effect. You could really create, you know, new kind of worlds 
with writing that you couldn't really do if you were just memorizing phrases and trying to keep this, this meter in mind and so on. Yeah, the Pali Sutras start off, thus have I heard, and they, they sound like kind of a memorized version of what could have been a sermon originally, mm-hmm. a simple teaching that was designed to be memorized. The Mahayana Sutras are just uh, some of the most mind-blowingly imaginative. I mean, they can be things like the Lotus Sutra. Yeah. They're more supernatural. They have these different, all these, you know, classes of, of uh, unseen beings and so on. Mm-hmm. This style is just is uh, it's hard to it's hard to describe to someone that's never read them. <laughs> I've called it uh, sort of analogous to science fiction, kind of a, a genre of religious fiction. You mm-hmm. know, and if a lot of science fiction and fantasy kind of operates like a, a J.R.R. Tolkien novel, sort of operates to illustrate through all these supernatural beings and so on themes of of conflict and love and loyalty and good versus evil. So I think a lot of these Mahayana sutras operate in the same way to illustrate certain Buddhist doctrines. When thinking about religion returns, I asked Dr. McMahon how competition with Christianity played into the development of Buddhist modernism. Dr. McMahon, you mentioned a bit ago that a lot of Buddhist modernism results from Asian Buddhists who in the 19th century and maybe the early 20th century, they kind of felt besieged by colonialism and also by competition with Christianity in those Asian contexts. How does competition with Christianity figure into Buddhist modernism? Well, it has to do with the colonial context. They were These countries in Asia were being colonized or being threatened to be colonized by European powers who were Christians. So missionization came hand in hand with colonialism. And so Buddhism as an institution was losing power in all of these countries. And at the same time, a lot of educated Buddhists realized that Christianity had its problems with modernity as well. There were people losing their faith in the Victorian era because of the discoveries of science, the age of the earth. The theory of evolution was very cutting edge and very disruptive to a lot of people's understanding of things. You know, the discipline of psychology was emerging and and seemed to promote a very different view of the mind than, than was traditional in Christianity. So there were a lot of forces that were threatening to Christianity. And the Buddhists, who were kind of savvy about this, often would align Buddhism with science in ways that were directly responding to the anxieties and problems that Christianity was having at the time. So, for instance, Buddhists were very keen to point out that they didn't really have any problem with evolution. And some would even go so far as to claim that the Buddha sort of understood this principle of evolution, you know, and that karma and rebirth was a, a kind of version of evolution. They emphasize causality, which is a big principle in Buddhist 
philosophy and is, of course, the, the sine qua non of, of scientific investigation. So part of that, though, involved sort of at least rhetorically purging Buddhism of elements that could be seen as superstitious or uh, too supernatural or things that would also be threatened by scientific vision. So when you see, for instance, presentations at the World's Parliament of Religions in the late 19th century at Chicago, this event where for the first time in human history, really, all these representatives of different religions all got together in the same place to present their religions to each other. Buddhism really gets articulated almost completely free of spirit worship, of supernatural elements. It very much looks like transcendentalism, for instance, you know, scientific rationalism with a little bit of a spiritual edge to it. And so this was a very conscious reconstruction of Buddhism, not just for consumption in the West, but also for, you know, a re-evaluation of what Buddhism could do for Asian peoples as well. And the way that a Protestant influence comes in, isn't it, is that there was an idea that uh, there's got to be a pure core of Buddhist teaching. And there are these later superstitious accretions So in the way that Protestants want to roll back Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox practices and teachings, you know, the Pope, the perpetual virginity of Mary and whatnot, couldn't we roll Buddhism back to something more acceptable? When I read statements by Western converts to Buddhism, you know, British people, American people, it almost sounds like the big attraction is that it was religion without God. Mm -hmm. That belief in God is obnoxious. There's somebody in charge, somebody who uh, is running things and is going to demand obedience and so on. And maybe this gives an authoritarian flavor to the whole of religions like Christianity and Judaism and Islam. And so it seems kind of a big selling point that it's spirituality without God. Do you think that's right? I think that is part of it, although I'm not sure that most... Western Buddhists necessarily reject God outright. They may have a kind of more vague idea of God and don't really like the very specific notions of God that you might encounter in Christian churches. And they might object to the idea of God being specially manifest in one historical person of of Jesus Christ. Yeah. But maybe in some kind of ultimate reality or something. Yeah, so I think it would be cast maybe in, in a more kind of uh, vaguely pantheistic form. According to the Pew surveys, a lot of Americans still believe in God, at least in a, in a kind of vague way, even if they don't consider themselves religious. I don't have the figures right in front of me, but uh, I looked at some of the recent Pew surveys, including Buddhists, and I was surprised at how many Buddhists in the West do believe in God. But what that means, it's hard to know. You know, that's the limits of these these surveys. You don't really know what they mean by God, and that's a pretty slippery word. Yeah, it is. Can you say a little more about the transcendentalist aspect to it? How does that come in? I mean, what does that look like when you see transcendentalist influence coming through modern Buddhism? You see sort of a, a tension between two strands of modernity in this reconstruction of Buddhism. One is this kind of rationalist attempt to align Buddhism with science, and the other 
is also sort of picking up on the fact that the transcendentalists were also critics of traditional Christianity, and and they were kind of countercultural. And so a lot of Buddhists did align themselves with more of a kind of transcendentalist and the European, I guess, transcendentalism I'm seeing as a kind of American version of, of Romanticism. And so some of the language that particularly Zen gets articulated in through the 20th century by D.T. Suzuki and his followers follows a kind of romantic, idealist, transcendentalist model. And, and you, you see a lot of references to Emerson, self-reliance. You see a lot of references to Thoreau, this kind of ideal of, of leaving the world behind and, and retiring to a hut and, and living a contemplative life. So they're picking up on these images that are already in circulation in American culture, and they're infusing Buddhism into it and, and uh, you know, adding some Buddhist dimensions to it. And so I think throughout the 20th century, as Buddhism develops in the West, it's sort of toggling back and forth between a, a scientific rationalist model and a more romantic transcendentalist model. And I think that still is in play today. Yeah, this is what was so interesting about the analysis in your book. If I could put it this way, Buddhism in modern times tries to locate itself as a happy medium. It's more scientific than Christianity, but it's more spiritual than what you call scientific rationalism or what some philosophers call naturalism. You know, the natural world is all there is. You can have the best of both worlds. You can have spirituality and you can have scientific thinking. That's right. Yeah. And and I think there was a real longing for that in the late 19th century. And you can see that coming across in authors like Paul Karras and, and others who really had this kind of crisis of faith and lost his faith in Christianity, but really still had a kind of longing for some kind of spiritual understanding of the world. And and when he heard these folks at the World's Parliament of Religions articulating Buddhism in a way that seemed kind of free of superstition and and free of a lot of the problems that he saw with Christianity and, and with Buddhism on the ground, he thought, wow, that's the religion of the future. Yeah. And when they start to purify, so to speak, one of the first things that goes, as you mentioned, is rebirth. What sort of teachings about rebirth do you see in the Pali Canon? It's there. You know, it seems a part of the Indian background, although not all Indian schools accepted rebirth, but it seems to be a a very dominant idea. And it's hard to get rid of, really. (laughs) And there are still a lot of controversies about whether you can be a real Buddhist and not believe in rebirth today. Uh, some people think, well, that's really an indispensable part of it. And others say, well, you know, just like Christians don't have to believe in a literal uh, heaven with, with angels and a literal hell that's in flames, we don't necessarily have to believe in, in a literal understanding of rebirth either. Now, when a Westerner hears about rebirth, or in our terms, reincarnation, they think, well, that, wow, this is good news. You know, I, I was afraid that death was going to be the end of me. I was just going to cease to exist. But hey, if I'm going to just be reborn, I mean, that's sweet. Maybe I've been through a bunch of lifetimes, and I can be through a bunch of more in the future. Is that how ancient Indians thought about rebirth? No, it, generally, rebirth was bad news, <laughs> according to the early Buddhist uh, tradition. Samsara, the constant cycle of of birth and death and rebirth, was ultimately a trap. It was ultimately something that kept you in bondage, it kept you in ignorance, it kept you in suffering. 
Later in the Buddhist tradition, I think rebirth gets a little bit of a, a more positive spin in that as the Dharma declines throughout history, which is a kind of an idea in Buddhism that the, the Buddha emerges, he preaches, he teaches, and then gradually over the years, over the centuries, there's a loss of the, the real teachings and the light gets dimmer and uh, true enlightenment gets rarer and rarer. And so the best you can hope for really is a good rebirth. So now, you know, that sort of brings rebirth to the fore again and gives it a little bit more of a positive spin. Uh, so a lot of Buddhists today, I would say they're more focused on rebirth than enlightenment. Because it might take several more rebirths to work your way up to, to getting nirvana or yeah. enlightenment. You know, ultimately, you'd want to be reborn at a time when a Buddha is around again, and that would be a, a great time to get enlightened. But now in some traditions, you can get reborn in a whole other realm altogether, you know, in a pure land. And, and that uh, almost is like just being able to stay in heaven for an indefinite period of time. So there's a lot of new ideas and different ideas that have emerged over the centuries. When thinking about religion continues, I asked Dr. McMahon about how Buddhist modernism has included some changes in the place of meditation in Buddhist practice. Dr. McMahon, it's become very popular in recent times for schools or therapists in secular settings to teach mindfulness meditation. In your view, how is this related to historical Zen practices? Mindfulness, as it's become very popular today, some of the versions of mindfulness actually come from a combination of a couple traditions. One, like you said, is Zen, and the other is Vipassana. Particularly the kind of secular mindfulness that's become very prominent in the West and now is, is kind of going global, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which was pioneered by John Kabat-Zinn, is definitely an intertwining of these two techniques, one coming from Vipassana, coming from Theravada Buddhism, and Zen, of course, coming from the Chinese and, and Japanese traditions. Historically, mass meditation for lay people was not really very common. Uh, you have pockets of it here and there, it seems, and it's hard to know exactly, you know, how many people were meditating in first century India. But it really seems to have been, for the most part, throughout most of Buddhist history, something for monastics, for monks and nuns. And even within the monastic community, that tended to be a specialization meditation. Some would specialize in scholarship and texts, and others would specialize in meditation. And it was seen often as something to really do, you know, if, if you were going to do it, you did it very seriously. You might have to go off to a cave for three years, or you might have to go off to a, a hermitage with a few other monks. 
it had near goals and far goals. The near goal was to tra- sort of transform the person and, and uh, you know, transform the ethical orientation of the person to allow the person to access the mind in a deeper way, access higher states of consciousness, and ultimately the far goal to produce full enlightenment. So mass meditation, like a lot of things that started in Buddhist modernism, really did start with colonialism colleague that I'm working on a book with right now, actually, Eric Braun just wrote a book on this mass meditation movement. And it really starts in Burma. It starts when a monk there, Lady Sayadaw, sees his country being invaded by the British and sees his Buddhist institutions having less and less power and crumbling. And he's really worried that this is going to be the end of Buddhism. And so he decides, wow, let's pull out all the stops and do something radical. Let's start teaching the ordinary people how to meditate, and let's start teaching them philosophy. That was just not done in Southeast Asia. The laity would be sort of seen as presumptuous if they would start meditating. You know, that was something that more advanced people did. So he started this mass meditation movement, and that came down historically This is sort of what brought meditation out from behind the monastery walls, so to speak. And then by the time you get to sort of mid-20th century, you have another move, and that is bringing meditation out beyond Buddhist institutions altogether. So some teachers are saying this is a, a universal technique. It's something that has to do with delving deeply in the mind itself. It's not just about being a Buddhist. And we can teach this to Christians or agnostics or Muslims or Hindus, and it'll have the same basic effect. So there you can start to see the secularization of meditation. The culmination of that is something like John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness-based stress reduction, where he very consciously stripped away all of the Buddhist language, anything that could be categorized as religious I think that was a very conscious move on his part because he wanted these things, these techniques taught in hospitals and schools and prisons in companies. And that's what's happened, really. And then the controversy about it, one of the controversies is from a Buddhist point of view, you've kind of stripped away all the Buddhism. You've stripped away the ethical elements. You've stripped away the philosophical elements. And, you know, what do you have left? So it's so watered down that it might not be uh, all that useful. From a more kind of psychological or medical professional level, I don't think they're too concerned with that. They just want things that will help their patients, you know, have less stress, have less anxiety, be able to manage their emotions better and manage their lives better. And it's a particular kind of Buddhist meditation that's moved out of the monastery and even out of Buddhism, isn't it? The kind of thing you find in Zen and you said Vipassana, focusing on the breath, noticing thoughts and feelings, and then letting them pass. When I read historical sources, I find other kinds of meditation, you know, actively visualizing a Buddha or going to look at the dead bodies at the burial ground so that you sort of realize how fleeting and uh, temporary your body is and things like that. Yeah. The kind of meditation that has become popular now is just a very tiny, tiny, thin slice, even of a certain text in the Pali Canon, maybe two texts that you could identify where that comes from. And even in those texts, they're much, much more complex. It's not just focusing on the present. No, not at all. And it's not non-judgmental either. I mean, you're mm-hmm. supposed to cultivate ethical judgments of what's good and bad, what kind of states of mind and emotional states one should foster, 
what one should try to let go of and even suppress. Right. So yeah, it's a, it's a whole very complex way of thinking and moving one's body and being. So yeah, a lot of that gets left behind. And so that's part of the controversy. Dr. McMahon, throughout the course of your book, you discuss many popular authors who have written books intended to introduce the public to Buddhism, books that have sold many millions of copies in the last hundred years or so. People like Olcott, Karras, Suzuki, Rahula, Trungpa, even the Dalai Lama. And in every case, you painstakingly show that some of what they present as the timeless wisdom of Buddhism are really ideas which are not prominent in any historical Buddhist tradition, but which are prominent in certain recent elements of Western culture. Do you view those authors as dishonest or even to some degree self-deluded? You know, I think what they're doing is almost inevitable and has been done many, many, many times in the Buddhist tradition before this particular version of it. You know, I think it's inevitable that people will take whatever their concerns are from their particular culture, whatever seems urgent at the moment, the questions that emerge that are unprecedented questions, and they'll retrojectively ascribe them to the founders of their tradition in ways that maybe the founders themselves never would have imagined. That's just part of how religions develop. So I don't think they're being disingenuous. I think they're really just responding and and reacting to their own times and trying to bring to bear Buddhist themes in unique ways on their world. Given that historical understanding, which I think is not something that comes naturally to people necessarily, it does give one a little bit more of a sense of responsibility, though. I think if you are the shaper of a new form of Buddhism— I hope it would prompt people to ask, well, you know, what are we doing with the tradition? Who gets to change it around? Those are difficult questions. There was a really interesting page or two in your book, and you didn't say this, but I took it that you had gone yourself to this performance called The Mystical Arts of Tibet. Mm -hmm. It was a presentation somewhere in the U.S. of of a traditional Tibetan ceremony, and the flyer that they gave out to the audience had an explanation of what was going on. And you, with your specialized knowledge of that tradition, you kind of say, well, actually, the ceremony means something quite different. You weren't offended by that, or I, I would be mad if I, <laughs> if somebody was uh, giving people what I thought was a historically misleading view of some, of some tradition that I was an expert on. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I think you have to take into account, in this particular context, the fact that the Tibetans are in a difficult position, and, you know, they're trying to keep their culture alive in a situation in which, you know, they believe their culture, and I think correctly, that their culture is threatened with extinction in some ways, or at least radical transformation that they're not in control of. So I think what's happening for some Tibetans is that they are sort of trying to take control of their tradition, trying to bring out certain things that resonate with the the cultures that they happen to find themselves in and, you know, do the best that they can in that way. I think the other thing that may render that a little bit more acceptable in at least a Mahayana Buddhist context is that there is a doctrine that's built into the Mahayana tradition that sort of allows for and encourages this, and that's upaya, the skillful means, the idea that you have to adjust 
the teachings of the Dharma to the particular audience that you're talking to. And that might mean selectively slicing out certain parts of it or re-articulating it in a very different way. And you see lots of instances in, in Mahayana scriptures of people doing that. So I'm sure that in their own understanding of what they're doing, that is undoubtedly a concept that they're drawing from. You know, how do we use skillful means to present the Dharma to people who really, you know, are in a very different world, a very different cosmology than ours? There's nothing remotely polemical about the book. You're, you're not um, arguing against anybody or denouncing anybody in any sense. You're just sort of acting the part of the, the perfectly objective historian. And, you know, let's find out where these ideas come from these ideas that are in Buddhist modernism, and you dig around in, you know, the German idealists and the transcendentalists and so on. Well, I, I think these ideas come from here. One almost expects you to turn around at some point and say, so these guys are not presenting authentic Buddhism. Has that been a reaction on the part of some Buddhists to these reformulations? And as I read you, this is, and this is reading between the lines, you're defending it in a sense, or you think it's something that's inevitable and not objectionable. Can you talk about this? Is it a controversy? Should it be a controversy? My project in doing this book was neither to be a, a kind of advocate nor a critic. I mean, there is a certain critique that comes in, in that I think any kind of exposing of the historical roots of something that implicitly presents itself as a kind of a historical essence of something that's been going on for, you know, 2,500 years implies a kind of critique. But yeah, I didn't come out at the end and say, hey, look at this big fraud, you know, it's all a new thing. In part because I am playing the historian here. And in that sense, I can no more expect some pure Buddhism to emerge in 21st century uh, America than it would have in China in the third century when Buddhism was moving from India into China. You know, it picked up elements of Taoism, it picked up elements of Confucianism, it left behind certain elements that just didn't really work in that cultural environment. And so, yeah, I think there is an inevitability to this. That's not to say that on a more personal level, I might not want things to be nudged one way rather than another. <laughs> So I, I do have my opinions about various forms of Buddhism, but I didn't really want to get into that so much for a, a work of scholarship. Was part of your purpose to foster discussion among the Buddhist community about these reformulations? You know, honestly, I think my original purpose in starting this, and I should say this was kind of a side project. You know, I was I was trained to be a, a South Asian historian of, of ancient texts, and that's what I did a lot of my earlier research on. And this was a side project that sort of ballooned into my uh, sort of sub-career. So originally, I started to just think about my own early exposure to Buddhism and recognize that that description that I read from the book at the beginning of our interview, that's what I thought. And I just began to get really curious after studying Buddhism academically and looking at the texts and how much more complex they were than the standard version of Buddhism that's popular in America. And also my experiences in traveling in Asia and seeing Buddhism on the ground and seeing Buddhism in temples and just how bewildering it was, really, when I came at it with that lens of a more narrow kind of westernized version. You know, I say in the book, I start with my students' understandings, but I was that student years ago as well. And so I wanted to understand it from that perspective. 
how did it get there? I wanted to do a kind of genealogy of how that image emerged. And I started to realize it was much more complex and grounded in big historical phenomena, big intellectual movements, political movements, and so on. So that became fascinating to me, and I, I just wanted to follow that through. Tell us a little bit more about that, Dr. McMahon, about when you first went to Asia. Why did you go? Where did you go? What did you find? I mean, exactly how was it different? The official reason I went as a graduate student was to settle down and study Sanskrit. And what I ended up doing was backpacking all around Asia and trekking in the mountains. And I finally settled down and studied for a while. But that experience of roaming around in Asia was just invaluable. And to see just how different, for instance, the different schools of Buddhism were, how the how different the temples looked, how, you know, a lot of Buddhism really on the ground is, you know, we're, we're used to thinking of it as a non-theistic religion, but it's, in some ways on the ground, it's a kind of wild polytheism. You know, there's a lot of devotion, there's a lot of worship, there's a lot of burning of incense and praying and there's fortune telling and there's spirit possession. And so there's this whole rich, wild world out there that most Westerners really don't know because it's always marginalized in descriptions that are meant to have Buddhism appeal to Westerners. So just seeing the contrast and realizing that the worlds of Buddhism were much bigger than the ones I imagined, I guess that was in part the seed of this project. So you encountered the practices that revolve around what scholars call the Mahayana pantheon, which are Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and they're quite the focus of a lot of practice, aren't they, in some of these contexts? Yeah, very much. And not even just in Mahayana, even in Theravada countries, you'll see a lot of devotion and, and a lot of mixing of Buddhism with local spirit religions and things like that. The Buddhism that has been expunged of all that is... Buddhist modernism. And that process of expunging a lot of that material is something that I became interested in. Why would that happen? Who was doing it? And, you know, what were the processes involved? When I was reading your book, I kind of expected to find a discussion of one point, and it wasn't there. And this is the point that when I look at a popular presentation of Buddhism, even a very expertly done one on PBS or BBC, There'll always be one of the talking head scholars who says something like, now we have to keep in mind the Buddha is just a man, not some kind of deity or something like that. He's, he's this man. He made these amazing discoveries. And Buddhism is just oriented around the discoveries of this man. I mean, <laughs> I think this must tie in with 19th century things that were going on in Christianity when I look at Buddhist historical sources, even the Pali Canon, just a man is not the phrase I would pick. <laughs> yeah. How would you approach that topic? You're right. I think the just a man rhetoric does come from the 19th century, and it's an implicit contrast with Jesus and with what made more kind of progressive Christians and agnostics and liberals uncomfortable about Christianity, that there was this special incarnation of God and you had this kind of God-man. And so in contrast to that, the Buddhists come along and say, well, you know, we're much more rational and our figure was just a man. But what does that mean? The idea of a man is very different in the 19th century than it would have been in 5th century BCE India. Mm -hmm. 
a person in that context was just one stage of many possible incarnations in the wheel of samsara. You could be reborn as an animal, you could be reborn as a god, you could be reborn as a a hungry ghost. So there are all these different versions of living beings, and we were going to be all of them in the infinite number of rebirths that we would all take on. And yeah, even in the early polytext, there are a lot of miracles and extraordinary things that happen around the life of the Buddha. While he is a man, he's a very highly developed man, and he's moving towards being very much more than a man. I remember encountering texts that say things like he's greater than any deva, any god, any deity. Yeah, yeah. I remember an incident, I don't remember where it is, but somewhere in the Pali Canon where someone questions the Buddha about, you know, sort of what he is. And he ends up saying, well, I'm a Buddha. Like, that's a category, you know, it's a a greater thing. They don't deny the existence of the traditional deities, but they put him firmly above those. Yeah, yeah. So if you say, well, he's not a god... Technically, that's correct, isn't it? Because that would be a lower form of rebirth, like you just said. But it's a little misleading for us in our context. Right, right. The Buddha is a focus, would you say, a focus of worship for most Asian Buddhists? Often that is the case, yeah. A focus of worship, a kind of moral exemplar. And then for maybe more sophisticated, philosophically trained folks, they might say, well, you know, in, in the Zen tradition, for instance, there's the idea that the, the real Buddha is within, it's within everybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, they want to discourage looking for an external Buddha. You know, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. So there are traditions like that, and there are ideas like that. But I think among the vast majority of Buddhists who are just kind of ordinary Buddhists, yeah, they'll see the Buddha as a kind of devotional figure, somebody to pray to, somebody who might help you out in times of crisis. And not just the Buddha, but you know, many other Buddhist figures like Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, and right. Uh, right. others. Yeah. yeah, there seemed to be a real living cult or interest in that Bodhisattva and in a bunch of other ones, actually, particularly in places like China and Japan. Yeah, I've seen recent Chinese movies that were devoted to Guan Yin, who's the Chinese form of that one, mm-hmm. Avalokiteshvara. Yeah. There's another complication, too, about the Buddha being a man, isn't there, in Mahayana, which is the Three Bodies Doctrine? Right. The Three Bodies Doctrine is the idea that the Buddha, as he was kind of walking around and, and talking to people, was actually more like almost a projection, that that was just the lowest version of the Buddha. And that that itself was based on a higher version, which was, uh, you know, some you might see it depicted in some of these lavish paintings of figures like the Buddha or, or Manjushri, you know, Tibetan Tonka paintings, you know, a kind of extraordinary shining being, you know. And then even beyond that, the Dharmakaya, the truth body, the body of the Dharma, you know, the essence of the cosmos itself. Various uh, texts articulate that in a different way. But yeah, so the, so the basic idea is that the Buddha himself, as a historical, concrete, personal figure, is not just that. And again, not just a man, not even just a being in samsara, but something that transcends the world in a sense and manifests in the world. I don't know if this is a good analogy, like a holograph that's being projected out by. Yeah ultimately by the truth body. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good analogy, and in some texts it really conveys that well. 
When you encountered this living world of Asian Buddhism with this whole pantheon, with all the many, many statues and shrines and so on, did you find it exciting and fascinating? Were you scared? What have I got myself into? What <laughs> did not know what to think about it? And you just, wow, I, ha- I have more to learn about. I think I, I realized that the Buddhism that I had encountered just in popular works in the West was, that's when I realized that, that it was a particular thing. It was its own brand of Buddhism that was carefully constructed and uh, was very much a product of its time. And that there were all these other versions of Buddhism that didn't really have much to do with me personally, because I couldn't really inhabit those worlds. So I, I, I didn't feel threatened by them. I felt fascinated by them, just in a kind of anthropological sense. I appreciated their aesthetics in in many cases, just the wild lavishness of Tibetan art and Chinese temples. uh, You know, it was very interesting to me. So, you know, in some ways it it was a kind of expansion of interest. And in some ways it kind of allowed me to say, oh, okay, well, here's the Buddhism that I understood as Buddhism. And, you know, here's all this other Buddhism. And so, again, that's part of what set me to think about, well, how did this, this very particular Buddhism that I was exposed to as a kid and, and that my students are exposed to today, you know, how did that come about? When you looked at these, you said, well, that's Buddhism as contextualized or adapted for a Thai person or Vietnamese or Nepalese, or I'm not sure how much of Asia you went over, but <laughs> hey, that's not mine. Mine is, is it modernist Buddhism then, really, that you, you sort of claim? Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a difficult question. I, th- I think um, insofar as one of the distinguishing features of modernism is that you kind of pick and choose, I guess I would have to be a modernist <laughs> in that respect. But in a sense, maybe everybody's a modernist at this point. You know, you, I don't know if there are any Buddhisms that are completely untouched. Even those that want to reclaim the banner of traditionalism are doing so in, in a sense in reaction to modernity. So there are lots of different, very conservative forms of Buddhism out there that, in a sense, are, are very much modern in that they're attempting to reject the modern world or, the, or, or reject certain aspects of it while claiming other aspects. So it's, it's a complicated thing. I don't think you can really draw the line today between an absolute traditionalist Buddhism and an absolute modernist. You know, everybody's combining these things and, uh, and articulating them in different ways. When thinking about religion returns, Dr. McMahon and I discuss how Buddhist modernism relates to politics in Asia and in the rest of the world. Context, I think it's fair to say that most people that are interested in Buddhism are in the progressive coalition politically. Mm-hmm. This would be true in America and I think certainly North America and certainly in Europe as well. But in Asia, things are more complicated than that, aren't they? You have sometimes Buddhist movements aligning with nationalism in politics. Can you talk about that? And do you think Buddhism equally well fits both of those? 
Right. So there are, yeah, for instance, nationalist movements in Myanmar right now, and, and you have Buddhists who are persecuting Muslims. Buddhist priests in Japan were training kamikaze pilots to be mindful whether they're flying their planes out to crash them into aircraft carriers. There's been violence in the name of Buddhism in, in Sri Lanka. So while I think the scriptures of Buddhism, it's harder to find uh, glorification or justification of violence than it is in Western monotheistic traditions. Buddhists are people, and, and they live in cultures, and those cultures get themselves embroiled in political situations. And Buddhists have not been immune to violence and also not been immune to using Buddhism for uh, political ends and violent ends and, and also nationalistic ends. That has been a part of Buddhist modernity in that Buddhists find themselves in very modern nation states, and they, just like people in other religions, have used Buddhist symbolism and ideas to promote those nationalistic and sometimes violent ends. Yeah, violence is one thing and nationalism is another. I think Buddhist texts are fairly consistently against violence, you know, and even against anger, but nationalism is... These outsiders, they're taking away our country, messing up our culture, and we got to do something about this. Maybe possibly something violent, but anyway, we got to save our country for our people. I guess that can only happen in Asia, right, with Buddhism, because these are traditionally Buddhist countries. You're not going to have Trumpian-type Buddhists in America, because this is traditionally Christian and not Buddhist. Yeah, well, we'll see. You know, it's hard to know what things will look like in a hundred years. But if a kind of uh, liberal, secularized Buddhism becomes very, very widespread among people in, in America, who knows? You know, in, I was just in California for about a month, and I think in the Bay Area, at least, Buddhism is just another religion. It almost seems, you know, it's you're as likely to turn around the corner and see a Buddhist temple as you are a, a Baptist church. It strikes me that Buddhism doesn't have a built-in political philosophy, so I could see how it could be adapted by people to fit Western liberal democracy or even a nationalistic dictatorship situation. Do you think that's right, that Buddhism doesn't naturally come with its own political scheme, or do you think it better fits some than others? Yeah, I, I think basically you are right. You know, there are things in Buddhist scriptures about good leadership and what a good king should be, but they're fairly vague. They don't lay out any kind of political program, and Buddhism was never a movement that set itself up as an all-encompassing movement. Like, Islam set itself up Mm -hmm. from the beginning as a religious political movement where you had to address all these different things. You had to address kingship and and, uh, and how to govern and what were the acceptable and non-acceptable uses of violence. And that was never really the business of Buddhism from the beginning, at least. Now, it accommodated itself to various political regimes throughout the centuries. But I think you're right that it doesn't necessarily lend itself to a particular political vision. People today might say in the engaged Buddhism movement, which is very left politically, that capitalism causes suffering and Buddhism is about trying to end suffering. So obviously Buddhism has to fight capitalism. But if you start from the perspective that capitalism is a really good thing and that it's brought people out of poverty and so on, you could probably pick and choose and reconstruct a version of Buddhism that would be very kind of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and, you know, you create your own karma and so on. There could be a very politically conservative version of Buddhism as well. 
So again, Buddhism has always been what Buddhists do with it. It's never just been something in and of itself mm-hmm. uh, outside of, of a political and social context. And it strikes me that the way that Buddhism spreads in recent times is people like you, smart college students, go and read books in the library, the bookstore, or they see videos on YouTube or go to a conference and things like this. A lot of times, historically, the way Buddhism spread, it really depended a lot on the sponsorship of a government. Yeah. If Buddhism doesn't have its own political philosophy that comes with it, why would a government decide to cast its lot with Buddhism and make that an official religion or at least an officially sponsored religion? Sometimes it just has to do with politics rather than what we think today of as religion. Sometimes they felt Buddhists had the best magic, you know? A lot of different reasons, and I don't think there's one overarching reason. You say magic, you mean like to control the weather or prevent war or that type of thing? Yeah. When Buddhism was coming into Tibet, that's what a lot of the Tibetans were interested in. They felt like these monks and these kind of tantric masters could have supernatural powers, and that's what they were interested in. Dr. McMahon, do you think that Buddhism will even more successfully compete in the religious marketplace in North America so that you see in 100 years, you know, 20% Buddhists? It's very possible, but it may also be that the way that Buddhism perpetuates itself in the West is, you know, kind of different from the model of uh, a kind of isolated membership religion. You know, a lot of people are into Buddhism (laughs) in America, you know? Yeah. And... I mean, nobody says they're into Methodism right? Or, or into Presbyterianism. So it may just sort of occupy a certain cultural space that is different from a membership religion. And it may just be that a lot of the ideas and the practices sort of permeate. And that's not too dissimilar from the way that Buddhism has perpetuated itself in some parts of East Asia, for instance. You know, in China in the 8th century, there were a lot of people engaged with Buddhism, but it's not necessarily the case that they thought of themselves as members of a Buddhist religion as opposed to the Taoist religion or something like that. Dr. McMahon, thanks for talking with us. Thanks a lot. It's good to be here. How much can Buddhism change and still be Buddhism? What weight should we give to the original teachings of the historical Buddha? And to what extent can we even know what those were? These are questions, it seems to me, which only Buddhists themselves can settle. I'm unclear how interested present-day Buddhists are in settling them, but if they try to, surely one step in those discussions is understanding the most recent processes of historical change, as this book describes so well. A question we can all ask is, should we expect our religion to be given to the human race, to have been revealed from, as it were, another realm? Or is religion something that we collectively make up, like our stories, folk tales, legends, and novels? Or can a religion somehow be both revealed and constructed by us? This is an ongoing debate within many religions. Generally speaking, the famous, widespread religions have taught that they are not of merely human origin. Even the Dharma has been often understood as the revelation of a great, transcendent being who, after countless virtuous lives, left his special heavenly realm to be born as a man, so as to use his final life to bring the freeing Dharma to all of humanity. How can a teacher in 16th century Tibet or in 20th century San Francisco add to or take away from such a message? 
it's complicated. Such a teacher may believe that he too is a Buddha, or that he's well on his way to becoming one, or that deep down everything and everyone already is. Or he may believe that he's received a special, powerful insight through a chain of transmission, a line of teachers that traces all the way back to the historical Buddha himself. Within the many Buddhist traditions, there are a number of opportunities for creativity to get a foothold. And many gurus and teachers today are boldly going where no Buddhist has gone before. As Dr. McMahon reminds us, Buddhist traditions have long adapted themselves to new contexts and cultures. In the past, this has led to the development of distinct competing schools and to some of those schools of Buddhist thought going extinct, outcompeted by Buddhist and non-Buddhist rivals. It will be interesting to see if the various sects within Buddhism consolidate or multiply as a result of Buddhist modernism. Today's thinking music has been our own mashup of a track called The Renaissance Man by Little Glass Men and a recording of Buddhist monks in the Osaka Shitenoji Temple in Japan, recorded in 2013 by Tritus. I'm Dale Tuggy, and this has been Thinking About Religion. Thanks for listening.